It was a whirl of passion and snow, a cocktail of ice and fire, and I spent two weeks frozen to it. It was my best bout of illness ever. Two weeks off school in the winter of 1976, watching from my sickbed the Olympic Games in Innsbruck. For a British kid, winter and sport means soccer and rugby. I'd never been exposed to the exotic menu served by the International Olympic Committee, but I eagerly ate from its table. I discovered ice hockey, bobsleigh, the biathlon, skiing with guns. How cool is that? And most exciting of all, the ski jump. I never told my parents, but I was actually over the illness after one week, but faked it for a further five days just so I could stay at home and watch those skinny athletes with unreadable Scandinavian names fly through the air at 60 miles an hour for 100 meters and land on two skis. Seven years later, when I'd finished my freshman year at college, I backpacked around Europe with some friends and we went to Innsbruck and to the ski jump, scene of heroics by those fearless flying Finns. I trudged up the hill, it's steeper than it looks on TV, and stood marveling at the view. There below was the ancient town with its gorgeous churches, historic civic buildings and quaint inns, all dwarfed by the Tyrolean mountain on which we perched. Now I suspect that the, ski, the, the, the view from every ski jump is scary, but there's something about Innsbrucks that gives it a value added in the fear department. As you stand at the top of the hill, towering over the town, there's one feature that grabs your eye like a fox snatching a chicken. There, right beneath the ski jump, dominating your view, demanding your focus, is the town cemetery. Is this some kind of sick joke? by the city planners. A cocktail of fire and ice. It's part 13 of our summer sermon series from Eden to Egypt and we are stranded in the fire. The Hebrew people are sweltering in the heat of injustice. This is a dry, scorching heat ignited by the icy heart of a tyrannical king. The Hebrews are slaves, expendable cogs in the machine that is creating some of the most extraordinary and long-lasting public buildings in human history. Last week, we experienced the chill of Pharaoh's blast as he gave orders for all Hebrew boys to be killed. His fear led to genocide, not the first leader with a frozen heart to sell out to evil and certainly not the last. 
but one special child was spared. The boy Moses, bundled into a basket, rescued by the king's own daughter, and now raised in the royal palace. One more irony in a throne room of poetic justices we've read about all summer. But even though he is raised in the Egyptian court as an Egyptian child, Moses grows up with the knowledge that he is a Hebrew. He has a deep affinity with his own people and an empathy for them in their suffering. So much so that one day he is out walking when he sees an Egyptian slave driver abusing a Hebrew man. And Moses sees red, lashes out and kills the Egyptian. Now, Pharaoh gets to hear of this. And fearing for his life, Moses flees to Midian, where he marries and settles down to a quiet, normal life, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. But there are some things you can't run from. One is your past. Wherever you go, there you are. Another thing you can't run from is God. Moses thought he'd lie low, assume an average Joe identity, but God had other ideas. God's normal is often extraordinary. Moses is out on the edge of the desert tending Jethro's sheep, and he has an encounter with God. He didn't know it was God at first. What he saw was a burning bush, another flame in this cocktail of ice and fire. That's not actually that remarkable. It's the desert after all. Bushes do sometimes burst into flames. If that is all Moses saw, he'd probably have glanced at it and walked on. But this is a bush that is on fire, but not being consumed. There are no flames and no smoke. Uh, sorry, there are flames, but no smoke and no ash. Moses is intrigued. As the writer says, he draws aside and takes a closer look. And then God speaks from the bush. Moses, Moses. Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God has a task for Moses to go back into Egypt, to go to the Pharaoh and to demand freedom for his people. Now, let me ask you a question. Which is the more amazing part of this story? That God should set a bush on fire that is not consumed by it, or that God should call a murderer to be the leader of his people? I think it's the latter. Moses is a fugitive on the run. He was emotionally compromised. He had trouble integrating two major parts of his life, his Hebrew birth and heritage and his Egyptian upbringing. 
and his inner conflict caused him anger, murderous rage. He thought that running away could end his turmoil, but like some divine therapist, God knew Moses had to face his past before he could find peace. And God challenges him to go back to the land he'd fled, to the king who'd passed a death sentence on him, and to own, without flinching, his deep identity as a member of God's people. And not just a member, but the leader. It turns out that Pharaoh is not the only person living in fear. Moses has a problem facing the music. Running away from Pharaoh gave us a clue, and now his response to God's call to go back to Pharaoh and make unimaginable demands confirms what we thought. Moses' default mode when in trouble is to run. He seems to have lacked confidence in himself and in God. Now there's a line between humility and fear. Moses asks God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That statement is probably on the humility side of the line. In fact, if someone's response to God's call is not, who am I, then there's something wrong. But even after God reassures him by telling him that he will go with him, Moses is not convinced. He says, okay, suppose I go and say to the Hebrew people, listen, God is going to set us free and lead us to a land of our own. They'll ask me who, who I am and who sent me. What shall I say? Actually, our reading ends too soon because Moses goes on to have quite a debate with God about whether he's picked the right man. Moses goes so far as to say, no, God, don't send me. I'm terrible at public speaking. Send my brother Aaron instead. I think that's where he crossed the line between humility and fear. So what is this story of fire and ice really about? Well, it's this. Hear the word of the Lord. A fugitive is not beyond restoration. A murderer is not beyond redemption. A person who lives with the consciousness of their moral failings and who now wrestles with thoughts of whether God can ever use them does not just have a place in God's heart, but a place in God's plans. A person struggling with fear, doubt and inner conflict, a person who doesn't even know who they are, is the prime candidate for a series of miracles that change a nation. The author Annie Dillard gets it. One Christmas Eve, when she was a young girl, there was a commotion at the front door. She says, It opened and cold wind blew around my dress. Look who's here! Look who's here! It was Santa Claus whom I never, ever 
wanted to meet. Santa was looming in the doorway and looking around for me. My mother's voice was thrilled. Look who's here. I ran upstairs. Like everyone in his right mind, I feared Santa Claus, thinking he was God. I was still thoughtless and brutish. I knew right from wrong, but barely tested the possibility of shaping my own behaviour, and then only from fear and not from love. Santa Claus was an old man you never saw, but who nevertheless saw you. You knew, he knew when you'd been bad and good, and I had been bad. She goes on to say that her mother pleaded with her to come. Her father cajoled her, her sister howled at her, but she would not come out from her hiding place. Santa was, in fact, the neighbour, Miss White. With hindsight, Annie realises that in her child's mind, Santa Claus and Miss White and God were all mixed up into one. She didn't quite grasp the difference between them. One time, she writes, quite by accident, Miss White was showing her how a magnifying glass focused the rays of the sun and burned Annie's hand. Annie ran home crying. Even now, I wonder, if I meet God, will he take and hold my bare hand in his and focus his eye on my palm and kindle that spot and let me burn. If I meet God, will he let me burn? But no, it is I who misunderstand everything and let everybody down. Miss White, God, I am sorry I ran from you. I am still running, running from that knowledge, that I, that love from which there is no refuge. For you meant only love and love, and I felt only fear and pain. The story of Moses is just beginning. Over the course of his story through Exodus, then Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, Moses' failure of faith, failure of nerve and failure of character keep boomeranging to smack him on the back of the head. But ultimately, his story is liberating. God does not give up on us. God does not write us off. Is God calling you to something scary this week? Listen to God's assurance to Moses. I will be with you. Amen.